Last week, we began looking at the book of Hebrews. And we noticed what kind of people this book is written to. It's written to Christians who are fearful and weary. As we read this book, we discover these are people who are worn down by the daily cost of being a Christian. The way they're marginalized and ostracized because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And these people are fearful that the cost may increase for them. They're worried that low-level hostility might turn into outright persecution. And the result of that fear and weariness is they wonder if it's worth following Christ. Aren't there easier ways to live? These men and women are wondering about giving up their Christian commitment. And into that context, the book of Hebrews comes as a word of encouragement. That's how our writer describes this book that he's written. That's the aim of the book. And the method of the book is to say to these Christians, look what you have. Look what God has provided in Christ. In Jesus, you have a treasure that's greater than anything else. So how could you walk away? How could you give up when you have such a treasure? We said last week, for 13 chapters, the writer is going to walk us around in Jesus. He's going to show us this treasure from just about every angle. And along the way, he's going to stop from time to time and say to us, Don't quit. Don't walk away from what you have in Jesus. Keep going all the way to the destiny he has for you. And the opening section of Hebrews lay the foundation for all that. In chapter 1, we heard Jesus is God's final word. There can be no greater revelation of God because Jesus is God. And there will be no other word from God. Therefore, our writer told us, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Because how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? That was last week. And in our passage this morning, the writer helps us do what he has encouraged us to do, to pay careful attention to the truth about Jesus. He tells us Jesus is our leader, our champion, and our brother. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. In the church Bibles, it's page 1202, and in the large print, 1682. We're going to read from chapter 2, verse 5, down to the end of the chapter. Just to remind you of where we left off last week in verse 4. The writer spoke about God the Father testifying to the truth about Jesus. And he's still talking here about God the Father when he says in verse 5, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor 
and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Chapter 1 of Hebrews showed us how high the sun is. That was the focus in chapter 1. It went into details about his lofty position. But here, the focus is very different. We are told how this high and lofty one came down to identify himself with us. But our passage doesn't start with Jesus. It starts by showing us the glory we were made for. In verse 5, the writer says, we are speaking about the world to come. That's a reference back to the end of chapter 1. We heard there about a future day when the earth and the heavens will be rolled up like a robe and changed. This world will give way to another world, a new heaven and earth. And here in verse 5, it says, it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. They're not the ones destined to manage it and administer it. They might have those kind of responsibilities in this world, but not in the world to come. So, if not angels, who will have that responsibility? Our boys are at the stage where if you ask them a question about the Bible, their approach is, if in doubt... Assume the answer is Jesus. I think that's pretty common. And that's what we might assume when we read verse 5. But if we do, we're jumping ahead of what the writer is actually saying. What he does next is to quote from Psalm 8. Look in the middle of verse 6. 
What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Psalm 8, which we read earlier, is about the glory, the dignity, and the high responsibility God gave to human beings. And Psalm 8 itself is pointing back, way back, to the opening chapters of the Bible. In the very first chapter of the Bible, we read this. God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. There is no greater statement of human dignity than those words in Genesis chapter 1. You won't find anything higher or greater than that. And it's what Psalm 8 has in mind when it says God crowned humanity with glory and honor. God put everything under humanity's feet. The creator king made us to be lords of his earth. To administer justice and peace and prosperity in his earth. To rule as creature kings and queens under the creator's authority. Psalm 8 sings about the glory we were made for as human beings. It tells us we don't have to try and create honor and dignity for ourselves. We don't have to engineer it or try and grasp for it. Our creator gave us dignity as a gift. The highest one of all said to humanity, under my authority, there will be no greater glory or honor than to be human. Created in my image to rule my creation. But then having laid out that grand vision for us, the writer of Hebrews brings us back to reality. The reality we live in. In the second half of verse 8, yet at present, We do not see everything subject to them. There's an understatement if ever there was one. This planet laughs at our attempts to rule it. Our carefully made plans can be overthrown by a flood or a snowstorm. Even the threat of a snowstorm puts us into shutdown, makes us change our plans. We can't rule the planet and we cannot achieve justice and peace among ourselves. The UN Declaration on Human Rights says that we all have the right to a fair and free world. Maybe so, but the UN cannot make that a reality. We prayed earlier about street children in Albania. That's a story we could multiply Thousands of times over. All around the world, human beings 
being stripped of their honor and dignity, being denied a fair and free world. What we see is that so often in this world, the weak are ruled by the strong. And the strong are ruled by their greed for money, sex, and power. The strong are not even able to rule themselves. They are slaves to their own unholy ambitions. The weak are ruled by the strong. The strong are ruled by selfish instincts. And down in verse 15, we're reminded of our greatest slave master, the fear of death. One writer says, With all our modern thinking, technology, and civilization, we are still no nearer to getting rid of this fear than our ancestors were. The greatest philosophers of the last few hundred years have turned the question this way and that. But death remains the great mystery, the dark denial of the goodness and beauty that we know in our lives and in the world. And the fear of death doesn't just infect our thoughts about the future, does it? What does it do to our victories and our accomplishments in the present? It makes them insignificant. Leo Tolstoy is best known to us probably as the author of War and Peace. But he asked this question about his own life. Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Today or tomorrow, death will come to those I love and then to me. Soon, not only will I not exist, but no one will exist who will remember anything I have written or done. Why then go on with the effort? Those were the thoughts of one of the most famous writers in history. So how much more is this true for the rest of us? Our fear of death casts a dark cloud over our future and it can suck the meaning out of our lives today. If death is the end, then what difference does it make what I do today? Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? How do we get into this situation? Made for glory and honor, but enslaved at every turn. Above all, enslaved to the fear of death. Well, the same book that tells us we were made for glory also tells us how we fell from glory. In Genesis chapter 3, we find humanity was not content with the glory and honor God gave us. Our first parents reached for the ultimate honor and glory. They sought after God's position. And in aiming to be more than we were created to be, we became much less than we were created to be. One writer says, in grasping for greatness, we became debased. In reaching higher, we fell lower into all kinds of slavery. It's a bleak picture. And yet, there is hope. 
Remember what came in our passage before the quotation from Psalm 8. Before that glimpse of the glory we lost. Verse 5 said, we are speaking about the world to come. The picture in Psalm 8 is not just a lost memory for the human race. It's a future hope. Mankind can again be crowned with glory and honor. We can, in the future, administer a fair and free world under God's authority. How is that possible? Well, verses 9 to 18 show us. And they do it by pointing us to Jesus, our only hope for glory. These verses tell us he is our leader, our brother, and our champion. First, our leader. We're told in verse 8, we do not see everything subject to humanity. But, verse 9, we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Verse 10 shows us God's intention to bring many sons and daughters to glory. The glory described in Psalm 8. When we fell, God did not give up on humanity. Yes, we fell a long way from the glory we were made for. But he determined to lead us into that glory. And to do that, he sent us a leader. Verse 10 speaks about the pioneer of our salvation. The word translated pioneer is very difficult to capture in just one English word. It has a rich meaning. We'll see that a bit later. But pioneer certainly gets part of it. A pioneer is someone who blazes a trail for others to follow. And what verses 9 and 10 tell us is that Jesus has blazed a trail right through death for us. He was made lower than the angels, born as a baby. He eventually suffered death on a cross. But he is now crowned with glory and honor, waiting for us to join him. That picture helps us understand what seems like a strange statement in verse 10. It was fitting that God should make the pioneer of our salvation perfect through what he suffered. What does that mean? Well, this is not saying Jesus had to become morally better. Several times this book will tell us in chapters to come that Jesus was sinless. Being made perfect here is not about Jesus becoming better. It's about Jesus properly fulfilling the role he came to fulfill. He came to be our pioneer, to lead the way through death into glory. And to do that, he had to suffer. There was no other way to blaze the trail for us. And he did it. 
The New Testament tells us he went into death and he smashed out the other side of death. Death could not hold him. He rose from the grave. Today he is crowned with glory and honor and he waits for us to follow. There's more. The one who waits for us is not only our pioneer, he's also our brother. Before Jesus blazed a trail through death, he put on flesh and bones. In order to lead human beings, he became a human being. And he did not renounce his humanity. When he smashed through death, he didn't leave his humanness behind him in the grave. The Jesus who is crowned with glory and honor is also our brother. Bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. The same family as those he came to make holy. And so you and I may feel very far from glory. We are far from glory. And yet verse 11 says Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Look again at verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. There are three Old Testament quotations there set off from the main text. And notice how those three quotations are arranged. The first and the last underline Jesus' family relationship to us. He's one of us. And the middle quotation shows how Jesus is the truest human of all. When we look at Jesus, we see what a human was meant to be. In verse 13, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. He attributes the words to Jesus, I will put my trust in him. And in the context of Isaiah, the him is God the Father. Jesus, our brother, is the ideal human being. In the Garden of Eden, humanity chose not to trust God. But even in his deepest suffering, Jesus, our brother, said, I will trust him. Jesus led the way, not only as our pioneer, but as the human brother who trusted God fully. And he showed that in his perfect obedience to God, all the way to death on a cross for us. A few moments ago I said the word translated pioneer in verse 10 has a rich meaning. It has more to it than just the idea of one who goes ahead of us. It includes the idea of one who fights on our behalf. We could translate it as champion. Now today we call someone a champion if they simply win something for themselves. So in boxing, for example, if you knock out the right person, 
you go home as world champion. And it has no implications whatsoever for anyone apart from you. The people who showed up to watch you, they go home and their lives are no different at all because of your victory. But being a champion used to mean much, much more than that. A champion was someone who went into representative combat on behalf of others, not just for themselves. The most famous example is David and Goliath. If you read that incident in the Old Testament, it's clear that was not just about two men fighting. That was representative combat. Goliath fought on behalf of the Philistines. First Samuel tells us he was the Philistines' champion. David fought on behalf of Israel as their champion. And the winner of that fight didn't just win a victory for himself. He won a victory for all his people. His people shared in the benefits of his victory. And that's what we're told here about Jesus. He is the champion of his people. Look at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. When he died and rose... Jesus did not simply blaze a trail through death. He defeated the one who had the power of death. And he set his people free. You and I do not need to fear the devil. Jesus, our champion, took him on. And at Easter, he fought our greatest enemy on our behalf, in our place, and he won. So thanks to Jesus, our pioneer, we need not fear death. Jesus faced death with determination. He blew a hole through death. And thanks to Jesus, our champion, we need not fear the devil. Jesus broke him. But when Jesus turns to face us, what you and I find is not the grim face of the pioneer. It's not the fierce face of the champion. Death and the devil have seen those sides of Jesus. When Jesus looks at us, we see the gentle and compassionate face of our brother. That's where chapter 3 brings us to in the end. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When God first spoke to Abraham, he promised Abraham a worldwide family. One day, Abraham's descendants 
would be a great family drawn from all nations. That's the family Jesus came to help. And he can help us because he became one of us. He has been through the conflicts and the tensions of human life. He knows the hurts and the trials as well as the joys. He can help you whatever your situation. He can help you by representing you to God and representing God to you. That priesthood of Jesus is mentioned here and it will be a major theme in the rest of the book. Here, it's simply introduced with no comment. It's here to let us know there is much more to see of Jesus. And we'll focus on his priesthood in weeks to come. But for now, let's focus on what we've already seen of Jesus. And let's ask ourselves individually, what is it you're afraid of? Are you afraid of trials and temptations in this life? But Jesus has broken the tempter's power. And he's been through the darkest trials. He can help you through yours. Are you afraid of death? But Jesus did what was needed to free us from the fear of death. He smashed a hole right through it. He is waiting for you on the other side of death. What does the name Jesus mean to you when you hear it? Someone who's distant? Someone who's too good to be true? Someone who's far, far from your life and your situation? that's your understanding of Jesus, then let the Bible change it. The Bible says those who trust in him find him to be their brother. And not a distant brother. Not the kind of brother who can't help or doesn't really want to help. Jesus is the brother who has taken responsibility for you. He cut a path for you. So you can one day be what you were created to be, crowned with glory and honor. He fought the battle you couldn't fight. He took on those enemies that you're afraid of and he won. And in doing that, Jesus went through the very depths of human pain. He is able to help you. Are you ashamed because of who you are and what you've done? Jesus is not ashamed to be called your brother. He will deal mercifully with your sin if you'll bring it to him. Let's pray.
Father, will you show us this Jesus we've been talking about? Crowned with glory and honor, the radiance of your glory, and at the same time, one of us, our leader, our champion, and our brother. The brother who is eager to help us, full of strength to help us, full of mercy for our weakness. We thank you, Father, for this treasure you have given us. Amen. Let's respond.